for good or for bad, during the Christmas season, many people's thoughts are on the giving and receiving of gifts. And since that's what many are thinking about at this time of the year, I have decided to do a Christmas message on God's gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus, as described in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So as you grab your Bible, please turn with me to the fourth Gospel account, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. I want to tell you up front that there is absolutely no way I can do justice to a passage that is so rich with feeling and meaning. In fact, it will probably take eternity for us to understand all that happened when Jesus died on the cross. It's a very simple statement to make, Jesus died on the cross, but in that simple statement is so much complexity, only eternity will give us a glimpse as to what all was involved. But at least we want to attempt to probe the depths of that centerpiece of human history. After all, the death of Jesus is the centerpiece of human history, not his birth. Jesus was simply born to die. The baby came to die. This was pictured in the fact that the babe was wrapped in swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths were strips of cloths used to wrap someone in for burial. So the baby came to die. He was born for what happened in the verses we're going to now read together. Please follow along as I begin reading in verse 16 of John 19. John tells us, Then he, the he being a reference to Pilate, then he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather write, He said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Today it is very common in our culture to use crosses as pieces of jewelry or as decorations with Christian significance. But 2,000 years ago, if you would have worn a cross and passed someone in the busy streets of of Jerusalem, they would have given you a look of shock and amazement. Back then, the cross was not the symbol of faith. It was the symbol of failure. The modern-day parallel would be someone who goes around wearing a chain necklace with a small box around his or her neck representing the gas chamber. Or someone wearing a chain uh, of jewelry with a little chair on it representing the electric chair. The cross was the harshest way to depict a man's rejection from society. John told us way back in chapter 1 that this ultimate and final rejection would take place. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Not only did they refuse to receive him, They murdered him. They crucified him. But even in this disgraceful, degrading death that we just read about, John portrays the majestic deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does so in four ways. He highlights, one, the specific prophecies about Jesus. Two, the superscription above Jesus. Three, the special love from Jesus. And four, the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. Jesus. Those are the four ways that John highlights and exalts the majesty and deity of our Savior. Notice how John paints this picture. Beginning in verse 16, we read, Then Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. They took Jesus and led him away. At six o'clock on Friday morning, Pilate gave in to the pressure and gave the order for Jesus to to be crucified. And beloved, it could not have been any other way. The fact that Jesus died by crucifixion fulfills so many of the prophecies of Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. We'll see many of them as we work our way through this text. Psalm 22 is one of the most prominent and specific passages of the Old Testament predicting the crucifixion of the Messiah. John quotes from it here in this text, as we'll see in a moment. In addition, the uplifted serpent in the book of Numbers pictured the fact that the cure for sin would come as a result of a lifting up. Jesus built on this in John 3, 14 and 15 when he said, And as Moses was lifted up in the as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Then John adds this statement in the very next verse, verse 33. This Jesus said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus had to die by crucifixion. Had Jesus been killed by the Jewish leaders, he would have been stoned to death. That was their method of execution, and that would have violated biblical prophecy. 
So God in his sovereignty saw to it that the Romans were in control at this time of history so that Jesus would be murdered by crucifixion. So let's not skip over verse 16 too quickly without realizing the sovereign hand of God has set everything in place to fulfill his purposes. In fact, to further substantiate that God is in control of this incident, all you have to do is compare this verse, verse 16, with Romans 8:32. We won't take the time to turn to it. But this verse says, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. Romans 8:32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? From a human standpoint, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. From a divine standpoint, God delivered Jesus to be crucified. Which one is true? Both are true. It's another of the many antinomies in the Bible. Just like the person of Christ, the choice in salvation, the authorship of Scripture and others. Both are true. And to hold on to one truth at the expense of another is not right. Pilate delivered Jesus. But in doing so, he was working with the hand of God. Yet, that doesn't justify Pilate's action in any way. Notice the last phrase in verse 16. It's not in all translations, but the last phrase says, They led him away. That perfectly fulfills Isaiah 53, 7, which says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Oftentimes, the victim of crucifixion would be dragged away screaming and yelling but not Jesus. He was simply led away. But that's not the only fulfillment of prophecy taking place here. Verse 16 gives us a couple more. I mean, verse 17. Verse 17 says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. The Greek text is very emphatic here. Jesus himself bore the cross. Bearing his cross fulfills the type presented in the sacrifice of Isaac because Genesis 22 says Isaac carried his own wood. The criminal would carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem with a placard stating the crime. This was done for two reasons. One is because this provided a vivid picture to the people that crime doesn't pay. This is a way to make an example of a person. But the other reason is because if there happened to be another witness who was overlooked, the witness could step forward to vindicate the man. So Jesus started out bearing his cross. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus was too weak to complete the trek. So Simon of Cyrene carried the cross the rest of the way to Golgotha. The place was called Golgotha in Hebrew. The Latin equivalent is Calvary. There are two little words here in this verse that I don't want us to miss, and they are the words, went out. Jesus went out. Again, this fulfills prophecy in a masterful way. This fulfills the typological prophecy of the sin offering in the Old Testament. The sin offering took place outside the camp because God was picturing the fact that Jesus would be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. So in Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, the writer said this, 
For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Beloved, what we need to see is that God arranged every detail of the death of Jesus to fulfill both the stated and typological prophecies from hundreds of years earlier. Verse 18 gives us another one. Verse 18 says, Where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. The first thing I want us to notice in this verse is the fulfillment of prophecy by the detail and two others with him. Isaiah 53.12 said years ago, hundreds of years ago, he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus could not have been crucified alone because God had said he would be numbered with the transgressors. And we know from Luke that one of the thieves became the first trophy of his grace by way of his death. Can't you see the sovereign hand of God in all of this as John portrays the majesty and deity of the Lord Jesus even in something as heinous as unlawful, unjust, unrighteous crucifixion. Crucifixion was so severe that no Roman citizen could be subjected to its cruelty. The Apostle Paul could not have been executed the way Jesus was because Paul was a Roman citizen. Tacitus said crucifixion was a despicable death. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero said, quote, It was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments, the most cruel and horrifying death, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. End quote. Crucifixion had originated with the Persians, but the Romans had perfected it as their most brutal form of capital punishment. The torture of crucifixion was so severe that our English word, excruciating, comes from the Latin word that means out of the cross. But you'll notice that John doesn't emphasize the human suffering of Jesus in his description, which begs the question, why? Why did John not emphasize all that Jesus went through in crucifixion? The answer is this, because the significant thing about the crucifixion isn't what man did to Jesus it's what God did to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So instead of magnifying the human suffering of Jesus, instead of elaborating on the human suffering, John exalts the deity of the Lord Jesus as seen in his death. What happened is important. But why it happened is just as important, if not more so. John, therefore, doesn't dramatize the human suffering of Jesus because his goal in this picture, as well as throughout his gospel, is to paint a portrait of the deity and majesty of Jesus. In his purpose statement over in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John doesn't ignore the humanity of Jesus. John doesn't ignore his human suffering. But John's goal is to display 
the deity and majesty of the Lord Jesus. Along these lines, John mentions here that Jesus was crucified in the center. The criminal in the center was the preeminent or prominent criminal, the the worst criminal. And indeed, Jesus was the worst from the standpoint that he was bearing all our sin. Positionally, he was more sinful than either man that was crucified with him. Positionally. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, made a powerful point. He said that when we read these words, quote, we are assuredly too stupid if we do not see plainly in this mirror how much God abominates sin. And we are worse than stones if we do not tremble at such a judgment. But when, on the other hand, God declares that our salvation was so dear to him that he did not spare his only begotten Son, what an abundance of goodness and grace do we here behold. End quote. But all of this didn't take place by happenstance. This was all in the sovereign plan of God. Every detail. And we see that when we see all the prophecies that were fulfilled in this event. We'll see another one when we get down to verse 23. But before giving us that one, John inserts another detail to exalt the majesty and person of the Lord Jesus, and that is the superscription above Jesus. Verse 19. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Because Pilate hated the Jews so much, he wrote this to take a jab at them. This is psychological revenge from Pilate on the Jewish hierarchy for forcing his hand and forcing his decision. This really was a jab, quite a jab, because the Jews thought Nazareth was the worst place in Israel and they thought Jesus was the worst person in Israel. But you know, what Pilate wrote was true. It was true. Jesus is king, not only of the Jews, but also king of kings. So even in this detail, God superintended it to state the truth about his son. Verse 20 tells us, Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Pilate knew this would be widely read. You see, the game between Pilate and the Jews that started during the trials of Jesus continued even through the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate thought he was making a joke of the Jews at the expense of Jesus when he wrote this. But he had no idea that God in his sovereignty used him as a puppet to state the truth about the death of Jesus for all time. Jesus was crucified Because he was king of the Jews. That's why he was crucified. And verse 21 tells us, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write, He said, I am the king of the Jews. They wanted the superscription changed from a fact to a claim or an assertion. 
One of the other gospel writers tells us that the Jewish leaders had delivered Jesus to Pilate because they were envious of him. And Pilate knew this. Pilate knew of the popularity of Jesus. He knew that the, that the religious leaders of Israel were envious of Jesus, envious of his popularity. So Pilate knew this was the kind of response he would get when he wrote this superscription. But that's exactly what he wanted so he could play tough guy and sort of get them back for what they had done by forcing his hand. Verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate refused to be pushed anymore. He is unyielding to their suggestion. But more important than that, John wants us to see that God superintended the whole crucifixion, every detail, so that it would exalt his son rather than debase him. And the superscription above the head of Jesus on the cross did that very thing. It exalted Jesus as he really is. It stated to everyone who read it then and everyone who has read it since in Scripture what the real issue was. Jesus was king of the Jews. Having put in that detail for us, John now returns to the subject of fulfilled prophecy. Verse 23 says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. We know from historical accounts that four soldiers would have taken part in the crucifixion. So they divided up the garments of Jesus. There were the sandals, the headdress, the outer garment, and the sash. Those were the four parts they divided. But the tunic was seamless, so they didn't want to rip it into four parts. So they decided to gamble for it. Verse 24, They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. This this event is an exact fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. So John quotes that verse right here in his text. That's why in our Bibles it's in either in quotation marks or it's italicized or some way indented to show us this is a quote from Hebrew Scripture. And after quoting the verse, then John adds the phrase right at the end, Therefore the soldiers did these things. Isn't that great? I love the way John words that. That's, that's his way of saying that what the soldiers did, they did because God said they would do it. That's why they did it this way. You know, as you look at this whole field, this whole area of fulfilled prophecy, it's really strong evidence for the divine authorship and inerrancy of Scripture. For example, during the, at the first coming of Jesus, not just his birth, but his entire first advent, there were 322 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled. Someone figured out the odds of that happening by pure chance with one man, and the fraction is mind-boggling. It is one over 84, and the 84 is followed by 97 zeros. That's the odds of it happening with one man by chance. These prophecies weren't fulfilled by mere chance. This is the sovereign hand of God at work unfolding his plan. And what the soldiers did here is just another piece in the puzzle. 
John wants to make sure we understand that. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. They did these things because God said they would do them. It was the custom of Jewish mothers to sew this kind of garment for their sons just before they left home. This was doubtless the garment Mary had made for Jesus before he left home and set out for his public ministry. It's amazing to think of the indifference of the soldiers to the whole situation. The Son of God is right there, paying for their sin, and yet they are totally indifferent as they gamble for the clothes of Jesus. Yet many people today are just as indifferent, just as cold, just as insensitive to the death of Jesus. In fact, some present here this morning are probably in that camp. Now you say, hold it, hold it, but I'm here at church. Yes, and the soldiers were there at the crucifixion. Presence doesn't mean anything. It's your interest in, your relationship to, your commitment to the Lord that's the real issue. In fact, sadly enough, this can even happen with us as believers. We can become so busy, so preoccupied that we become indifferent to Christ and what he has done for us. In some ways, sadly, we can become like the soldiers. But John wants to contrast that group, the soldiers, with another group at the cross. It's another group of four. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. John seems to insert this as a contrast to the cruel indifference of the soldiers. These four women stood by with hearts full of compassion and love for the Lord Jesus. One of the four was evidently the mother of James and John. Remember, she was the one who had come to Jesus asking for favoritism for her two sons. And if you remember that event, you will remember that Jesus told her that the cup of suffering must be experienced before the throne can be enjoyed. You have to wonder what was going through her mind as she witnessed the horrible agony of Jesus in light of what Jesus had said to her on that occasion. Mary Magdalene was one of the four. She was the one Jesus delivered from seven demons. And Jesus uh, delivered her in, in his ministry, and she never forgot what Jesus had done for her. His love had delivered her, and her love for him would never die. One of the four was the mother of Jesus. In Luke 2.35, Simeon had told Mary there on that occasion when they brought baby Jesus to the temple, Luke 2.35 records Simeon saying to Mary that her soul would be pierced one day as by a sword. And surely as she saw her son hanging on the cross, her soul was indeed pierced. So Jesus is about to do something about it. Verse 26 tells us, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. This may be one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Many people think that when Jesus said, Woman, behold your son, he was saying, Mom, look at me. Look at what they're doing to me. Look what they have done. But that's not at all what Jesus was saying. 
when he said, Woman, behold your son, he was telling his mom that John would be her new son to care for her. You see, at this point, none of the brothers of Jesus were believers. And the best we can tell, Joseph died early in life. So before Jesus dies, and he knows he will be resurrected, but he'll only be here on the earth for 40 days, and then he'll ascend. Therefore, he makes preparation for the care of his mom. And again, we see his selfless love. His thoughts could have been preoccupied with himself, and understandably so. After all, he is bearing our sin. He is being crucified. He is suffering wrath from the Father. His thoughts could have been preoccupied with himself, but instead he shows his special love for others, specifically here, his mom. Barclay puts it this way, quote, There is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. End quote. This selfless love of Jesus is demonstrated several times in the final chapters of John's Gospel. For example, earlier in the previous evening, when Jesus was gathered with his men in the upper room, just the night before this, he was thinking of his disciples instead of himself. We know that because he washed their feet to teach them a farewell lesson of humility. Then in the garden, he, he displayed his special selfless love by seeing to it that his disciples were not arrested. you remember how he did that? He made sure that they were not arrested and were able to go free. And here he entrusts the care of Mary to the disciple whom he loved, which is none other than John himself. The next verse makes it clear what Jesus was referring to by his statement. Verse 27 says, Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Historical tradition tells us that John did indeed care for Mary until his death. He's the only one of the disciples not to die a martyr's death. He lived to a very ripe old age and all that while cared for Mary. We often hear that a mother's love is the deepest of all, and certainly that's the case in many, many situations. But there has never been a deeper love than the love Jesus showed for his mom in this instance. John and Mary in a sense, needed each other because they probably were hardest hit by the death of Jesus. So Jesus links them together as he's dying on the cross. But I want you to notice something very important about this verse. Notice that Jesus didn't refer to Mary as mother or mom. He referred to her as woman, which to us sounds bizarre, but it was a term of respect. But Jesus didn't call her mother because it was important for Mary to understand that her relationship needed to change from mother and son to savior and sinner. And that was the significance of what he was doing on the cross at this very moment. In fact, between verses 27 and 28, right there in the white spaces between the verse, Matthew tells us that the earth was covered with darkness for three hours as Jesus became sin. During that time, Jesus suffered the fullness of the wrath of God as well as complete and total isolation from God the Father. Beloved, all the suffering of all the people in hell for eternity will not compare to what Jesus went through as God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
Let me say that again without hesitation. All the suffering of all the people in hell for eternity will not compare to what Jesus went through when God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. During that time, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But all that is past as we come to verse 28. Verse 28 says, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Jesus knows it's time to end this whole ordeal. And mark it well, he was in control of the timing of all of this. He died exactly when he determined to die, not because they took his life. He knows it's time to end the whole ordeal, so he requests some liquid in order to speak. It was common for fever to set into the body of the victim of crucifixion. The fever would inflame the wounds and create an insatiable thirst. So Jesus struggles to get these two words out of his mouth. This is the fifth statement of Jesus from the cross. The first was when he referred to the soldiers and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. The second statement of Jesus was when he told the believing thief, This day you will be with me in paradise. The third statement of Jesus is the statement in verses 26 and 27 about his mother. The fourth statement from the cross was when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His fifth statement from the cross is this one here in verse 28, I thirst. The sixth statement from the cross is down in verse 30, which we'll see in a moment when he says, it is finished. And his seventh and final statement from the cross was when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the fifth statement from the cross here in verse 28 is, I thirst. Jesus did thirst. But he also uttered this statement as a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. And without realizing they were doing it, the soldiers cooperated to further carry out all the details of the plan of God. Verse 29 tells us, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Earlier in the crucifixion ordeal, Jesus had refused to drink the pain-deadening wine that was normally given to victims of crucifixion. He refused it. But now that he is at the end, he wants something to drink so he can speak loudly and clearly his final statements. So he accepts the sponge at the end of the hyssop. It's interesting to note that hyssop was used in the celebration of the Passover lamb because at the time of the Exodus, it was blood sprinkled on the doorpost with hyssop that saved the people. So Jesus, as the true Passover lamb, dies as the true lamb of God. And John tells us in verse 30, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? 
bowing, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Usually it's the other way around. A person's spirit in death leaves and then their head bows, but not with Jesus. He bowed his head and then gave up his spirit because he controlled the timing of his own death. The sour wine gave him enough strength and moisture to victoriously shout this final statement before he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He cried out, It is finished. By the way, that is one word in the Greek language. One word. The same Greek word is used in verse 28, and there it's translated fulfilled or accomplished. You could translate it that way here. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said fulfilled, accomplished. This Greek word was used by merchants when they would stamp on a bill that had been paid, and it was stamped paid in full. The death of Jesus was more than just an example of selfless love. It certainly was that, but it was a substitutionary death. It was a propitiation. It was a payment for your sin and my sin, and it was payment in full. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26 says, Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have, have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The death of Jesus is sufficient payment for your sin and my sin. And that's why he said, fulfilled accomplished. It's finished, paid in full. So if we are willing to let go of our sin to receive His righteousness, then we can have eternal life. We can have His righteousness and the very life of God. Jesus paid it. God gave His Son. John tells us at the end of this verse, then bow, and bowing His head, He gave up His spirit. The little phrase, bowing his head, is interesting because this is the same phrase Jesus used at one time in his ministry when he made that famous statement, the Son of Man has nowhere to bow his head. Most of our translations don't render it that way. It's the exact same phrase in Greek. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, the foxes have holes... Uh, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the only place where Jesus could lay his head to rest was on the cross. God gave his Son. So what are you trusting in for your eternal salvation? Are you trusting in your own merit, your own good works, your own religion, your deeds, are you trusting in an experience you had years ago in some church service or in some evangelistic meeting? Or are you trusting in the full and complete atoning work of Jesus Christ as your substitute? As we think about gifts at this time of the year, beloved, let us never forget this gift that we just read about here in John 19. God gave his son. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head in closing this morning, having just seen with your own eyes and heard with your own ears what God has given, the greatest gift by far ever given, I ask you this morning, have you by faith received God's gift? Have you humbled yourself 
before God as a little child and in simple childlike faith received God's gift of salvation, purchased by Jesus through his death. You see, a gift doesn't do you any good if it's not received, if you don't take it. If I buy a gift for you and I set it right here in, in front on the, on the platform and I say, here, it's paid for, it's your gift, but you don't come to receive it. If you don't take it, it does you no good. In similar fashion, Jesus was given by God. John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave us the greatest gift he could give, his son. But you have to receive him. That's why John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Not all people are children of God. Only those who receive Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I ask you again this morning, have you received God's gift? If you have not, or if there's any doubt in your mind, then I urge you, this very moment, to humble yourself before God, right there where you're seated, in the quietness of your own heart, just to call out to God and say, God, I want to receive your gift of forgiveness. I want to receive your gift of salvation. I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. I deserve condemnation. But I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn from my sin to you, to your son Jesus Christ, and receive him right now. And you don't have to say it that way. God knows your heart, but I encourage you to call out to him in humility, in repentance, in sincerity, and receive God's great gift. Father, as I said at the beginning of the message, there's no way I can do justice to a passage so rich, so profound, so deep with meaning but my prayer and hope is that maybe in some small way our exposure once again to the description of the death of your Son would stir our hearts, would grip our hearts, that we would be reminded during this Christmas season as we think about the giving and receiving of gifts, what a profound gift you gave this world, a gift that cost you more than we will ever understand, certainly this side of eternity. And yet you gave. You gave willingly. You gave freely. And as you have given this gift, we see from your word the importance of taking it, of receiving it. So I pray, Father, for anyone here among us, anyone hearing these words by extension, that your spirit would stir that person, that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to understand what it means when John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. May they understand what it means to humble themselves, to have faith like a little child, to repent of sin, turn from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive this greatest gift of all. And for those of us who have received this gift by faith, may we celebrate it in a new and fresh way this Christmas season as we think about this magnanimous gift given to us for our redemption. We pray in Jesus' precious and matchless name. Amen.